Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello there, listener. It's Ryan. Just a quick one before you start this wonderful episode of the Second Tier Podcast. We recorded this episode in the very short period between Joe Edwards getting sacked by Millwall and Neil Harris being appointed. We thought it was going to be Neil Harris who takes over from him anyway, so we do talk about that at length in the show. But I hope you enjoy the show. It's a cracker, I can tell you that. And welcome to the Second Tier Podcast. I'm Ryan Dilks, and I'm joined by the life of your average journalist to mine being Pep Guardiola's. It's Justin Peach. Good day to you, Ryan. Oh, Justin, Justin, Justin. I hope you're well and ready to talk about some midweek championship action. But before we start this Thursday edition of the Second Tier, I thought I'd reintroduce my book of Neil Warnock quotes, which... I um, introduced last week. Of course, mm. I got it for a birthday present. Possibly the greatest birthday present anyone could ever expect to get. Um, would you like to give me a page number? And I'll start this episode off with a Neil Warnock quote. How old is Neil Warnock? He's 76, isn't he? So I'll go 76. 76. Uh, okay, so this is on his first match as Leeds manager. I regretted not putting myself on the bench after 10 minutes of the game. Right. Does that make sense? I'm not sure it does really. I'm not does sure it? it does, but that that must have been, given the context of the quote, he must have been angry. Yeah, well, I, I think 99% of these quotes are, are from him not being very happy. Um, this is from him when he was in charge of QPR and they were thrashed by Bolton. I'm not happy we lost 4-0, but sometimes you have to smile through adversity. Which I think is something that we can all learn from, really, isn't it, Justin? That's quite a you know, cathartic quote. It, you know, it makes yeah. you think a little bit deeper about things. Um, maybe you need to lighten up the mood a little bit going into the podcast because that's quite a deep one. So this is um, about Crystal Palace midfielder or former Crystal Palace midfielder, Carl Fletcher. Um, his wife had just gone into labour, apparently. <laughs> right. I don't think the lad would have had a free header with Fletcher on the pitch, but he had to rush off because his wife was having contractions. Women can be so inconvenient, can't they? It's cost us a bloody point. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. That's how we queue up the podcast. That's how we start the pod. (laughs) Casual misogyny. Welcome to the number one championship podcast, the second tier. Thank you for joining us wherever (laughs) you are. I mean, we, we, we were expected to talk about a handful of midweek games here on the second tier pod today, but we've got that. And we've also got news of a managerial change at Millwall. Yes, Joe Edwards has been sacked as head coach. So we'll talk about that very shortly and his potential successor, which has been rumoured. We'll also talk about those four midweek games in the championship, um, including that big loss for Southampton, another loss for them. So we'll talk about that very shortly as well. We're also going to do a review of Sunderland Till I Die. Of course, the new series has come out. So we're going to have a chat about that new series. Only three episodes, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. And we're also going to go through a couple of other newsy bits from the Championship over the past few days and finish off with another round of footballers you've met in strange places. But let's talk about Weirwall, Justin, because they've sacked head coach Joe Edwards. It's after just one point from seven games with the Lions sat 21st. It was his first job in management, Justin. Perhaps it was just too big a job. Too big a job was Millwall a too big a job? I don't think it was because you've got really good principles as I've banged the drum about over Gary Rowett laying them. Um, you've got really solid principles to build on at Millwall. I think it would have been a, a good role for most managers to take on. I just don't think Edwards was the right was the right man for the role. I mean, I was sceptical when we spoke about it way back when he was appointed. And looking from an outside perspective about management in general, 
it's just so much more about or more than just style of play and working with youngsters as Joe Edwards knows if you go back to his post-match presses as well that gave me an indication of the job probably swallowing him up um, they, yeah, defeatist mindset was coming out there's a lot of feeling sorry for themselves he just looked out of his depth and sounded out of his depth as well and that's where leadership comes into it it's so important with managerial appointments you get the leader right before the coach and the style of play uh, and obviously with the, the last two sackings in, in Joe Edwards and, and Mick Beale you cannot bypass the trait of leadership neither of them had it and they've both paid the price of it after just a few weeks in the job yeah well Millwall obviously took a gamble on getting him in when you're a club like them who have missed out on the playoffs multiple times in recent years. You can't blame them for trying something different and taking yeah. a chance on a young coach with fresh ideas. And I will always be the first one to praise a club when taking a chance on a young coach because, look, it works more often than not when you look at the likes of Kieran McKenna, Steve Cooper, Enzo Maresca, uh, Michael Carrick, Liam Mazzinia, Danny Rule, etc. It could go on, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work out every time. And... Obviously, it hasn't worked out here. If we're being cynical, then maybe having Frank Lampard as your main figure to learn from mm. isn't a great start. But look, he tried to change a lot, particularly with the style of play. And maybe he should have just kept it simple and tried to change things over time. He also seemed rather out of depth in recent interviews. I don't know how much of a leader he is behind the scenes. But judging from how things have gone, I'm guessing not a great leader. Ultimately, though, the main thing is you're judged on as a manager, is results, isn't it? And one point from seven games is obviously abysmal and this Millwall team should simply not be sat 21st in the table. It's not completely different to the side which just missed out on the top six last season. So it would be a, cat a catastrophe for them if they went down. So that's why a change was definitely needed here. Well, yeah, they're now in a position where they're firefighting, aren't they? They are desperate to stay up because teams below them in QPR and Sheffield Wednesday are picking up results and Millwall aren't. They are sinking really, really quickly. So they've had to they've had to press the, the panic button and this is the panic button, unfortunately. And I think, let's say Joe Edwards gets a summer as opposed to coming in sort of mid-season. I think things might fare a little bit better, but that's the price of progress you pay, isn't it? Sometimes you've got to take two steps back. Um, to take three steps forward, if that's the saying. I don't think it is, but you know me. Um, and, you know, they, they, Millwall might resort to type. They might resort to the, the standard Millwall appointment, if you like. Um, or they might try and do something a little bit different. I think that's the, the route that I think they should go down. I do think they should commit to, to doing what they're doing now in terms of going for a manager who is a little bit different to what they've been used to appointing, i.e. the Gary Rowitz, the Neil Warnock, uh, not Neil Warnocks, but again, you get the point. Um, it's, it's, it's an important thing to do, I think, if you've got a squad that they've got now. I just don't think it's suited to playing a direct style of play that we're used to seeing. Yeah, well, you mentioned them about going to press the panic button now. They certainly were in the panic station, so therefore it wasn't a surprise to see Joe Edwards be dismissed, was it? What is mm. a surprise is to see who his touted replacement is going to be. Numerous reports say they're set to turn to former player and manager Neil Harris. Now, he's currently in charge of Cambridge in League One, but I've got to say, Justin, not a manager I expected to see back in the Championship this season. Got to be the first manager as well if he is appointed to manage in League Two, League One, and the Championship in the same season. That is a great shout. I tell you what, <laughs> he must be, mustn't he? Must I can't be. think of anyone else who possibly fits into that mould. But yeah, that is a great shout. But what do you it, think of the appointment, Justin? I, I don't know. I, I kind of go back to that leadership thing I was talking about. Neil Harris might be a good leader, but you've got to wait up with style of play as well. That is also important. And I just don't think his style of play that we've been used to seeing at the likes of Cardiff and Millwall is particularly effective in the Championship anymore. That being said, I don't think there are many clubs in the Championship that play that direct style of football that he plays. So that might work in his favour. There have been a lot of progressive coaches come into the Championship in sort of the last 12 to 18 months and we've seen a drip feed of those direct pragmatic coaches sort of dip out a little bit and maybe drop down into League One. Um, so this might be a, a, a good step up for Millwall. But that being said, I was alluding to it, Millwall being a good project for managers. Um, I do think they should stay on the line of appointing a coach that um, that is that is going to play a high-press style, a little bit more progressive than that than maybe what Neil Harris will play. But I'd say, I think we're used to, we're thinking about Neil Harris when he was in charge of Cardiff and, and Millwall, while they were super direct. That might not be the case. They might be, he might have changed up a little bit, but if he's been managing League 1 and 2, I don't think he would have done too much. 
interesting what you say, Justin. You say that you think they should go for a manager who likes to press high up the pitch, that kind of that kind of approach. But my question to that would be, what manager is there out there who's well, willingly yeah. available and realistic who plays that style? Because it's an, it's one that's highly sought after, but there aren't necessarily all those managers out there, are there? No, I think that's a key thing. That's a key thing you've got to think about now is that we're in February. The, some of the good managers have been taken. I mean, John Eustace was available just a couple of weeks ago. Um, so yeah, you are in a position where you, your pickings are a little bit slimmer than what they were. And I mean, it depends how long Neil Harris is going to be in charge for. Is he going to be here till the end of the season? Is it going to be an 18-month contract or a two-and-a-half-year contract? We don't quite know yet. Uh, it might not even be Neil Harris, but it's likely that is going to be the case. Um, and I just don't think Millwall should sacrifice that long-term project and long-term goal of hitting um, hitting their stride and getting into the top six and pushing for the top six to yeah to, to go back to this yeah sort of type type manager that they've been used to appointing the safe option if you like. Um, that's why they they maybe should do a Sunderland and maybe look to bring someone in on an interim basis till the end of the season. But you know that's that's by the by. It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But look, it's, it was a bad project and Guy Rout was. It, it, it showed what good a job Gary Rout was doing at the club and maybe Millwall fans might think twice before they turn on a manager. Well, I mean, that's a conversation for another day. But with Harris, he's obviously taken the step down the ladder by managing Gillingham and he was only appointed Cambridge manager in December. So mm. he could have held out for a job at championship level instead of dropping down level. But he decided he wanted to be out there managing someone at some level, which I think is admirable on his, on his behalf. But to be fair to him, he did all right at Millwall the first time around and at Cardiff. He got Cardiff into the playoffs, which perhaps looks like an even better job now considering how things have gone for them since. But the most important thing for me is Neil Harris is a Millwall legend. He will walk yeah. in there and get respect from the players, the fans, and rally everyone to get them out of the situation they're in. He plays the Millwall thing. way as well. Um, is he good, good enough tactically? I've got my doubts. But if the target is to stay up the season, I can see why they've done this. I think it will be a short-term thing where they will be saying, look, Neil, your job this season is literally just to keep us up, just, mm -hmm. you know, firefight for us. Um, with regards to how long his contract will be, if I had to guess, I I would guesstimate something around 18 months because it would be strange for him to leave a stable job in League One for him to have a job for, what, three, four months remaining of the season. So I think it will be the job for this season will simply be to keep them up. Next season, I would be a bit worried if Neil Harris was still in charge. But in the short term, it gets a thumbs up from me. And that's what I can say, Justin. I think that's the, that's my line of thinking. The short term, I'll, I'll say yes to it. It's just a long term, I have doubts. Um, and I do think you've missed a tap in here in terms of the Neil Harris uh, appointment. Go on. He knows the bloody club, doesn't he? I was trying my best. He knows not the to club. I was trying my best not to say it because I didn't want to get all, um, you know, ex-pro about it. But I think, in a way, he knows the club is more applicable here than it is for other situations because you yeah. know Millwall are a very unique club, aren't they? And the fans like the football to be played a certain way. They like, you know, the team to be you know, high energy getting into the opposition's faces. And I think Neil Harris will appreciate that and will go in there and show that he does know the club, whereas someone yeah. like Joe Edwards clearly didn't. Yeah, I think it's a Sunderland paradox, isn't it? It's the same same paradox as Sunderland in that you, you've got a working class um, supporter based town, city, and you need someone who understands that ethos as much as anything else. It's not always going to be someone from the club, but you just need someone to, that understands the club's ethics philosophies um and, and history and background that's why that's why michael duff didn't work at swansea it's it's this it's a very basic way of saying that but you know in, in essence he knows the club is a basic way of saying he knows everything to do with the football club how it works how it's structured um and everything and he's got history as well and ultimately he's going to be he's going to have to step up and be the leader and that's what we all need right now they absolutely do need something, don't they? Because it's going pretty rotten at the moment. Well, Millwall, in Neil, what potentially could be Neil Harris's first game in charge, have Southampton away this weekend, which was looking like a pretty daunting prospect, but maybe not so much after the midweek result for them. Let's talk about that now, Justin, because Southampton lost for the second time in three games after being beaten 2-1 at home by Hull. 
They lost last week against Bristol City, but then followed that up with a win away at West Brom. So I think you'd be forgiven for thinking that loss was just a one-off, but they were poor here. Well, mm. Hull were great and Southampton just didn't get going until way too late in the game. And I mean, we're being frank about it. Hull were unlucky not to win this by more, but it's now five wins in six for the Tigers. We were saying at the weekend how, despite their form, they hadn't played particularly outstandingly in that time. Here, I thought they did, Justin. Yeah, they were fantastic. They were absolutely fantastic. And I think it's really important to to point out that I'm not criticising Hull. I just don't think the performances have uh, been in line with the quality of players that they brought in over January. And I've said that already. Um, but this is more like it. This is what you want to see. This is what you want to see their stride gathering into the final stage of the season. It's exactly what you need because they they took the first half of Southampton. They, they, they came with intensity, creativity and bravery and that's something that's been lacking in the last few games. I thought um, Fabio Carvalho and um, Anis Ruri were, were fantastic. They're, I've been a critic of them in the last few games but they were both exceptional both got on the score sheet and it's exactly what Hull have been after. Let's say first half, they, they blew Southampton away. Second half, they managed the game really well. Late wobble with the Joe Rebo goal, but they stood up to the task. And that's exactly um, the sort of character you need in these sorts of games when when you get it. And that's why you do have to praise, in some essence, the last five or six performances before this game. Because uh, Liam Rossini has installed that camaraderie, which is really hard to generate as a manager. You look at the teams that have struggled, and he's a young coach himself as well. He's installed that uh, camaraderie and that togetherness that gets you through gets you through games where you're not quite clicking. And um, that's been a big thing. And you saw both both aspects of um, Hall's, yeah, Hall's game there. It was great. Yeah, but you, you spot on, Justin. Southampton could just not get a grip on that attacking trio. We've been waxing lyrical about how exciting they are, Philogene, Carvalho and Zorori. But we hadn't really seen it in action yet, had we? But this is what they're capable of. I will admit, when I saw Jaden Philogene up against Ryan Manning, I thought, oh, <laughs> this could be a long day for him. And it was. <laughs> it was. But this was much better from Hull. And not only were they so threatening going forwards, they kept it tight at the back. Well... Southampton were piling on the pressure and even though they did admittedly slip up a bit with that Joe Rebo goal by and large they kept Southampton pretty much at arm's length even though they were you know 10 men behind the ball at times but it was a statement win for Liam Rosinia's side they've got to play three of the top seven in their next five games and they the opposition may be looking at that with a bit of trepidation now because this shows Hall can do a job on you if you're not careful because they are a bloody good side. And while we haven't been massively impressed with them recently, this is an example of them, you know, being that really good side who can hurt you if you're not careful. And mm-hmm. um, let's talk Southampton, Justin. I thought that loss to Bristol City last week was just a blip. Now I'm not sure after this. How about alarm you? bells are ringing. Alarm bells are ringing for you, aren't they? I don't. I'm not particularly. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I'm not particularly on the edge of my seat, thinking, "Oh God, Southampton are dropping off." Ooh, I'm getting worried. Um, I think every team. It's worth highlighting that every team suffers blips. You know, Leicester are going through uh, something at the moment. They've set such a high standard for themselves that I think any knockback is going to feel devastating to an extent but I'd say I'm not overly worried about them yet because you're allowed to have off days and Martin obviously needs to find a way to pick his side up however if you do go to the game against Huddersfield Southampton started slow in first half of um, each of the last two home games conceded twice and they're left chasing the game and here against Hull they're up against a much better outfit you just can't afford to do that it's making sure you're a little bit more streetwise and you come out of the blocks a little bit quicker um and just overall, you're overall a bit better. It's as simple as that. Obviously, football's not that simple, but no, that's the analysis of it. And I think Martin was quite harsh, actually, in his post-match presses, suggesting his side lacked courage. But I just think they failed to, to match Hall's intensity. And if you don't do that, you get punished. Yeah, uh, I, I can see what you mean. For, from, what, from what I've seen from Southampton... Well, what, we've, what we have seen from Southampton during this incredible run that they had been on was them just dominating games. They were retaining possession and just turning it into chance after chance. Against Hull, they didn't do that. They had one good chance in the first half and that came from Hull having a mare while trying to play it out from the back, which the Southampton didn't punish. And then they didn't really create anything of significance until the Gerard Rebo goal in the 88th minute. And this defence, which has been so solid during the unbeaten run, looked a bit all over the place. They've been impeccable at trying to play it out from the back, but they weren't here. So 
It's undoubtedly a concern when a side goes on a 25-game unbeaten run where they're pretty much faultless in that time and don't look like slowing down at any point to suddenly having two games in three where they were so flat. And that's happened against Hull now and, and against Bristol City last week. It wasn't just, you know, the it wasn't simply the opposition just, you know, a snatch and grab kind of thing. They were really poor in both those games. And that's why you've got to be a bit concerned if you are a Southampton fan after this small sample size of games. Would you would you be worried about Southampton now dropping out of the top two race? Because it, I think it hands leads quite a significant boost. Not yet, Justin. Not yet. I, I don't want to... I, I think you'd be getting a bit carried away if you said that was the case at the moment. But look, the top... I was going to say the top... Yeah, well, the top four. The top four have been in such unbelievable form throughout this season that if you do have a lapse of five games, then it's going to cost you. And Southampton may find that to be the case if they're not careful because it wouldn't take much for Ipswich, Leeds and Leicester to just run off into the distance. So that's why they need to get back on the horse bloody quickly. Uh, Speaking of Ipswich, they've now gone above Southampton. It's after they beat Rotherham 4-3 in a rollercoaster game at Portman Road. (sighs) Rotherham went ahead, then Ipswich equalised before making it 3-1 then Rotherham would go on to make it 3-3 in the 94th minute. And then Ipswich went straight up the other end and scored the winner. An absolutely bonkers game. By the way, the size of the bollocks on Cafu to score a 94th minute (laughs) Penenka to equalise the game for Rotherham. Mind-blowing how he's kept such a cool head there. But I mean, look, Justin, we could talk about whether Ipswich are going up until the cows come home, whether we agree on that or not. But surely we must agree. Ipswich Town are the most entertaining team in the Championship, aren't they? Oh, without doubt, without doubt. They average the most goals per match in the division. And whilst it's great for the neutral, I imagine, as you say, the amount of grey hairs that have gone up in Suffolk over the past sort of seven or eight months must be horrible. <laughs> uh, must, well, must have increased massively. Here's a question, actually. It's going to put you on the spot. If they were a wrestler, who would they be? You know, they're a real showman entertainer type. You know, they, they, they like to like to get the crowd up and don't care too much about yeah, their wrestling flex, if you like. Um... I guess if they're all about the showmanship, they must be a bit Shawn Michaels-ish. I don't know. Something along those lines. But I mean, look, they've had a few games this season which have been utter carnage. And this was just another one to add to the collection. And even those games that aren't utter carnage have had some element of chaos to them. They've Mm. had more games featuring four goals or more than any other team in the championship. Now, a lot of that is down to them being the second highest scorers in the league. But they also concede plenty too, as you've rightly pointed out, Justin. Another feature, though, is the fact they've won more points from behind than any other team in the division. 25 now, which is by far and away the most in the league. And it's more than a third of their points which they've won this season. That's incredible, isn't it? So, look, you're almost guaranteed goals in an Ipswich game, which is great for the neutral. I mean... The overriding thing here with regards to them being the most entertaining side in the league as well is the fact that they play the best football in the league, as far as I'm concerned as well, because it's lovely to watch, isn't it? With the quick triangles, the crossfield balls, the nifty interchanges around the box. And we've seen some spectacular team goals in that time as well. But you've also got the likes of Connor Chaplin, Leif Davis, Amari Hutchinson, Nathan Broadhead, who are just a joy to watch. So is being the most entertaining team in the league going to win your promotion? Probably not, but they're they are one hundred percent the most entertaining team in the league, aren't they? I think that the, the I mean, if I was going to throw money at watching teams in the division, it would be Ipswich and maybe even Leeds. But then again, I think just the story around Ipswich and how they're doing it is fantastic. The amount of points they've won from coming from behind as well is massive. I mean, Tom Eve scored in the second minute um, for Rotherham against Ipswich. That is that is such a blow, especially at home because the crowd's barely settled. The crowd's barely settled, and you're one 0 behind. Um, and that sort of mindset to come back into the game, the character, is really hard to adopt. I know I've been a, crit- a critic of Ipswich and their top two credentials uh, in the past, and I still think they will come up short because defensively they concede too many goals for my, uh, you know, for my money. But that that character and that attitude, say if you're in a playoff game, second leg, you're up against it, you're 1-0 down from the first leg, you're, down, you're going into the 10 minutes, last 10 minutes of the game, you're back Ipswich to, to come into it because... They attack without any sort of due care and with so much ferocity that teams give up. Like, for example, to go up the other end of the pitch in this game against Rotherham and score a minute after that penalty, you're deflated. You have no idea what to think. And you you go up and you, you go and score. I think it's incredible. It is incredible. It is incredible. And that's why 
you know, they're a team which have taken my heart this season just because every game is just an absolute roller coaster and I love it. At three second half goals, saw West Brom win 3 0 away at Plymouth. Ended up being a very comfortable one for Carlos Corbran's side, where, I mean, they were quite unlucky not to win this by more considering they missed some really good chances and hit the inside of the post twice. But look, a great way to bounce back after losing to Southampton last Friday. And this is just what they do, isn't it? When they suffer a disappointment, they bounce back instantly. And that's why. Yeah. It's difficult to not see them being in the playoffs come May. Mikey Johnston, who joined on loan from Celtic, had an excellent game after coming off the pitch. Scored a great goal. Certainly one to keep an eye on. One of the other players to get on the score sheet was Cedric Kipre, who is having an excellent season, isn't he, Justin? I think it's important to shine a light on him because for some reason he he, he comes across as a bit chaotic. Um, and I'm trying to, I, I am going to praise him, but he just couldn't, he does come across as chaotic, but that's what you love about him. Um, and I think he's become such a better player in the last two years while retaining that edge. I think you might, um, where you might not have any idea what might happen next. Um, and I think playing under Carlos Corbran has, has turned him into a bit of a monster and he's definitely been one of the most consistent centre-backs, if not the most consistent centre-back outside of the top four, if you like. Um, and that's down yeah. to, again, we talk about the amount of clean sheets that West Brom win. That's not down to just the goalkeeper. It's down to a solid back four. It's organisation, it's communication, it's leadership. Cedric Kipre has been centre of that and he's been absolutely superb this season. Well, what you forgot to mention, Justin, is this is a guy who was deemed surplus to requirements at the beginning of last season for West Brom. So it's quite the third round for him because for me, he's been West Brom's best player this season. Yeah. A, a massive percentage of their success is down to Carlos Corbran, no doubt about it. And he's made this team into a unit and there hasn't really been an individual player who has performed overwhelmingly better than everyone else. But I'd say the best of the bunch is definitely big Cedric he's I think mm-hmm. you're right Justin probably has been the best centre-back in the division outside of the top four because he's just been so dominant at the back and is one of the main reasons why only Leicester and Leeds have conceded fewer goals than West Brom one of the best centre-backs in the division definitely uh, the final game on midweek was Cardiff v Blackburn which ended goalless two teams who could really do with a win but couldn't find it here and to tell you the truth they could still be playing now and I'm not sure either would have scored. I was looking at the highlights of this and the first comment on YouTube was, you've got some balls calling these highlights. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't a classic. A good summary is Cardiff had more chances, but none of them were anything more than half chances. And the closest either side came was actually Blackburn when the ball fell to Tyree Stolen about 10 yards out, but it was well saved by Ethan Horvath. Otherwise, I say this is a strong contender for worst game of the season. It is now just five wins from 20 for Cardiff since the start of November. And Justin, when it rains, it truly pours because Aaron Ramsey has been ruled out until the end of March because of a calf problem. I will be honest, I almost completely forgot and Ramsey had moved to Cardiff because he's mm. been just so out of action for so long, hasn't he? He hadn't played since September before making his return just over a week ago. He made a couple of uh, appearances off the bench, I think, but he's now got injured again. And it's interesting to think how different Cardiff season could have been if he was there fully fit. Dare I turn back the conversation to, to what we had over the summer when we were sceptical of the signing and criticised the signing of Aaron Ramsey? Dare I say that signing an injury-prone player who's over the age of 32 in the championship perhaps wasn't the best strategy to go for? I know it's the prodigal son returning for Cardiff City, but I imagine he's on a better salary than most in that squad. And at the end of the day, Cardiff have committed a decent outlay to a, a player who's not played very often this season, who they desperately need because they need creativity. Because, I mean, we, we said the statistics in the previous episode about their, their, their games, not creating enough chances, not taking enough chances. Aaron Ramsey would be centre of creating those chances if he was still involved. But unfortunately, you're relying on a 32-year-old who's got a very bad injury history. Dare I say, we told you so. I, I don't want to say it, but I said it. Well, you're not wrong, Justin. I think, um, unfortunately, everyone knew this was the case. When you sign Aaron Ramsey, you know it's coming with the risk of him missing a lot of games through injury. I mean... To be fair to him, at Nice last season, he wasn't actually too badly affected by injury, but it's something which has blighted his career and has unfortunately been synonymous with his career. And luckily, he's been able to have a very successful career despite those injuries. But it is worth mentioning as well that Cardiff say he's unavailable until the end of March. But what's happened at least once this season is they've said he'll be back at a certain date and then he's not for whatever reason, because of some sort of a setback, I'm guessing. So 
there's a chance we may not see him again this season, which is a shame because it was one of the big stories of the summer, wasn't it? Yeah. Him returning to Cardiff, the prodigal son, as you say, Justin. But for him to have played less than 600 minutes before the end of March is undeniably very disappointing. But this was a risk that Cardiff were always going to take when signing someone like Aaron Ramsey, unfortunately. Justin, let's have a quick break. After that, we'll give our review of Sunderland Till I Die before finishing off with footballers our listeners have met in strange places. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Second Tier Podcast. And we've gone through the midweek games in the Championship now, but let's talk about one of the big news stories of the season. It's the return of Sunderland Till I Die. Yes, that's right. Season three of the iconic series. And having watched it, I assume it's the final episode. It's the final series as well, hmm. because it seemed like a kind of a sign-off, really, didn't it, from the Sunderland Till I Die era. And what an era it's been. I mean... Justin, what, what were your initial thoughts of it? I, I thought it was enjoyable. I mean, I always find Sunderland Till I Die enjoyable. Yeah, I think it tells a different story to the usual football documentaries, doesn't it? I think if you look to sort of the All or Nothing series or anything like Done by Sky, it's all very manufactured. It's all very, um, it's not as raw as, as as the one that is on Netflix with Sunderland Till I Die. I think you, you really capture and feel the passion of the players and the supporters and the, and the, and the club, because not only is Sunderland such a unique club um, in the sense that it's, you know, it's a city that is brought together by its football club, but it's also, yeah, it's, it's, it's one that's together. It's one that's passionate. It's one that's been down on its look for a long time. Um, so yeah, I think initial thoughts for the series, it was good. It captured all of that. I wanted more episodes because I think there's such a, it's such good storytelling and we've seen such good storytelling and I've had so many quotes from previous series we didn't really get that with this one, but I think, you know, it capturing sort of the love and the energy that fans have about a football club and its story of getting back into the championship. I think it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely fair. Justin, my, my thing with football documentaries is it's very easy for them to be very boring. I mean, everyone who yeah. listens to this is a big football fan. And even me, as someone who's such a keen watcher of football, I often find these documentaries quite boring but I think what sets Sunderland Till I Die aside is it's not afraid to show you the bad things yeah, so exactly. like when you look at maybe all or nothing's a bad example but let's say that it's very it usually takes a positive spin on these kind of things and doesn't really show you the bad things that are happening behind the scenes now that doesn't people necessarily losing jobs for example well it's yeah a real exactly. thing. yeah yeah there is that and and I think the other thing about All or Nothing is it doesn't really show you the supporter angle. It just shows you behind the scenes footage. Whereas mm -hmm. this talks about the fans and how traumatic a few years it's been yeah. for Sunderland fans. Um, but also little tidbits as well, where we didn't really necessarily see it as much with this series. But th there were little hints of it, like Alex Pritchard, for example, saying, I'm not sure Sunderland have made the right decision in exactly. sacking Lee Johnson. And that's the kind of thing that makes you go, oh, well, didn't expect to hear that, but you don't really get that in your usual documentaries. And that's the kind of thing that I think makes Sunderland Till I Die stand out from all other things of its kind. Um, 
what do you think about the intro, Justin? I kind of forgot about it, but it's, um, I don't know, I've got mixed emotions about it. The intro, or in a sense, though, the intro to the series where it sort of cut back to like Charlie No, no, I mean, I mean the intro to each episode, you know. Oh, the song, yeah. It's the a bit, song. It's, it's, um, I think the song is beautiful. And I think the like imagery that you see is really like beautiful as well. But I just think it, it paints a bit of a contrast to what you're actually seeing. But I mean, the song's great. I love the song. Yeah, but I think, I think if you're you right. Is it? <laughs> Jesus Christ, you've just ruined it for everybody. You've ruined everything. Um, I've no idea what point I was going to make now. I think with the song, I think it, it captures the essence of the emotion actually coming out to supporters as opposed to football in general. You know, I think with, with football, we're used to, we're used to hearing sort of blood pumping music gets you up for things. Whereas this one's like, this isn't a documentary series that you know wants you to play football. It captures the despair, the emotion, the frustration, the anger. It captures every single emotion. I think that song really brings it out of the, the series. And you are right. It probably is a bit of an anti-climax or a bit of a contrast, as you say, to, to what you're coming up against. But <laughs> but I think it does does it does a really good job of uh, sort of un- making you understand that you're not watching a football documentary. You're watching a documentary about a football club. And everything with it. And the town. The city exactly. Itself, yeah. really, aren't you? Um, with regards to this actual series, it was very different to the past two because it's basically a documentary about a playoff final, really, isn't it? As opposed to the all-encompassing seasons, which we had in the first two series. I mean, I came out of it loving Luco 9, even. Oh, my God, yes. I think it showed to me that he's just a nice bloke, but he is also a bit mad. There was one moment where he was just singing really loudly to himself while walking down a corridor. It's <laughs> just like, this guy. That was just it. Yeah, the man saves Labradors. He kisses fellow footballers to be a shithouse. Like, you can't hate him. And I know football fans of opposition clubs might hate him, but you watch this and you go, you are a genuine guy. You are in, you are you are such a bloke. You are a lad. You are incredible. You you love everything. You love playing football. And you can just, that's what I mean. You're like, you, you feel it. You really do feel it. And you can get on board with it. Um, and like just the amount of injuries he played through as well during that promotion season was just absolutely astounding. Yeah. Um, I don't want to give too much away, but it really was, you know, that that is a proper proper footballer who loves playing for Sunderland. And as I say, you don't get that in any of the documentary series. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the whole, the, the, this series in particular, I think the couple of downsides was, could have done with more episodes. It did feel a bit... A bit like we were shortchanged compared to what we had in the first two series. I also felt at times it was more like a documentary about Sir Louis Dreyfus, the mm-hmm. owner, and I don't really care about him too much because he's live a very charming yeah, but life. He, and but I he's don't not. Want to see it. He's not Charlie Methan, though, is he? He's not yeah, going to exactly. give you quotes. He's not going to give you quotes, and that's where I get where your disappointment is. Um, I, I think if 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 it was to be a perfect series. More of Lee Johnson would have been fantastic. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> and that's one of my other, um, you know, faults with it. But I mean, another fault is I thought there was an excessive focus on another podcast, which we won't mention here. But, uh, <laughs> didn't enjoy how much they featured on there. But I mean, overall, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed the bit where the final whistle went in the playoff final, and they had like a. 20 second long highlights package of the past couple of seasons of Sunderland Till I Die. And it was just kind of like a roll call of the greatest moments. And, you know, talking about the lows of Chris Coleman being <laughs> threatened outside of the Stadium of Light to Charlie Meppen and everything in between. And I, it just brought back fun memories for me, but it also fun, talked fun about <laughs> like the journey that Sunderland had been on in the Sunderland Till I Die era to this point where they finally got back to the championship. And I mean, I don't want to give too much away, Justin, but that ending yeah. was absolutely heartbreaking. I had no idea it was coming. And Sunderland fans may have had an inkling that it was coming. But for me, it hit me like a ton of bricks. It was, oh, yeah. God. Yeah, but this is what football means to people. Um, it's what football means to people. And uh, especially when you're part of a, a seat in a club that has been on a downward spiral for so long and you come out of it. Um, you experience those highs and you, you go through those lows. And as I say, that's they, it captured... 
yes, it's the documentaries and, and the love and the passion the, the supporters have for the football club. Um, I think that's the, 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 the big thing that this documentary series has done for me. It's sort of reignited my interest in the community aspect of football and how important that is because, yeah, to, to, to hit that final scene, you know, it does, it does, um, it does hit you quite, quite deep and I think that's really important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, overall, big thumbs up from me. I'm going to miss Sunderland till I die because I think as far as documentaries go, it has been the goat for me. Would you agree with that, Justin? Absolutely, absolutely. I'll ask you a quick, quick, quick question. If you were to do a documentary on any football club in the Championship right now, like Sunderland Till I Die, who would it be? Sheffield I know Wednesday. my answer. Sheffield, Sheffield Wednesday. Wednesday. <laughs> I'll go with Stoke. No, Justin, Sheffield Wednesday, Chancery. Oh, Come on yes. now, that'd be great. <laughs> that would that that is um, that's like Charlie Methon in, in Overload. But I just don't think Chancery will put... No, actually, he's an idiot. He would put himself out there. Yeah, okay. I don't, well, if we're doing this, I want the owner or, you know, the executives or whatever to be in full view all the time. I want to see what Chan is doing, but I mean, he only goes to games every so often. He only comes to England every so often, doesn't he? So we might not mm-hmm. have the same, you know, impact that Sunderland Till I Die would have. But I mean, Sheffield Wednesday would be definitely top of it for me. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, that's Sunderland Till I Die. What a series it has been. And I'm sad that it's gone, but we've had the memories, haven't we? So... You know, let's uh, let's just remember it while it lasted. Um, we'll we'll do some quick championship news, Justin, before we do another round of footballers. Our listeners are betting strange places. And speaking of Sunderland, their former midfielder Jan Mvia has signed for West Brom on loan. Of course, former Inter Milan midfielder as well. He's joined on a short-term deal. The 33-year-old has been a free agent after leaving Olympiacos last summer, and. It's a proper throwback, isn't it, Justin? Jan and Via. It's incredible. I think the most incredible thing is he's, he's 33. It feels like he's been around for about 20 years. Yes. Yes, um, you're right. It's so odd. But I mean, he's a cool hero at Sunderland, just talking about Sunderland. He's a bit of a luxury midfielder, a lot of technical ability, and the experience he's got at the highest level is is massive. I think West Brom, in the, in terms of their positions, so they are well stocked in his central midfield. They've got so many central midfielders now, but... You add someone like Jan Invira into your team, you're automatically going to benefit. He's good at set pieces as well. Yeah, what a what a signing. What a signing. I, I, I do really enjoy it. I think how could Corbran cultivate such a relationship with Invira at Olympiacos over several several months to then bring him in 18 months later? It's such a weird one. It's just, I think it's just strange that Jan Invira, from, from what I remember, was at one point one of the most highly rated young talents in the world. And is now knocking about in the championship. I think it's just great, and I'm 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 enjoying how every so often we have you know a former wonder kid, FM wonder kid, just dropping down to the championship. I'm thinking, who is the Croatian midfielder who is at Barcelona? Oh, um, Alan oh. Hilalovic. Is yeah, that it? Hilalovic. That's the budget. Yeah, and he popped up out of nowhere. It was great. So I think this should be a trend more often. Each season we have a random FM wonder kid just cropping up out of nowhere more of that please and um, kind of kind of kind of carrying on with the Sunderland theme actually in this news which is going to be you know in the next story as well but Steve Bruce could reportedly be back in management soon but not at club level he's been linked with becoming the new South Korea manager West Brom to South Korea the natural career progression Justin I don't know. I don't know about this one. It's it's so weird. It's so weird. I didn't think Steve Bruce would be open to leaving the UK or the the Caribbean, let alone managing another continent. So fair play to Steve if he is up for it. But truthfully, was it a good move? South Korea had a fractured relationship with Jurgen Klinsmann. I kept up to date with that because that was, was, a, say, that was an interesting Klinsmann, one. Justin, I, I think um, considering his you know, well-known habits as a manager. I'm not sure Steve Bruce is necessarily a downgrade. Ah, That's a fair point. That's a fair point. But as a a national side, surely he can do better than a manager who spectacularly failed in his last two jobs in England, one in the Premier League and one in the Championship. He's he's an okay manager though, isn't he, Steve Bruce? I know his reputation has made him into a bit of a meme with, you know, various different videos and what have you. How's the bacon? How's the bacon, you see? Um, You know, he overall is still a good manager. There's a reason he got all these jobs in the first place, the West Brom, Newcastle, whatever. Good Um, agent. Good agent. But, I mean, he he has got a good record as a manager by and large. And while he may not be fondly thought of by many fans at different clubs, he still 
I reckon if he came in at a championship club of, you know, a lower mid-table level, he'd do a bloody good job. I mean, you look at it, I'm surprised he hasn't gone into international management soon. I mean, people may have not been keeping across this, but Ireland having an absolute nightmare at the moment trying to recruit a manager. Steve Bruce... I think would be a perfect appointment for that kind of job. So I think it suits him. Plus, he gets to go on holiday to watch cricket in the West Indies every so often. So, you know, jobs are good as far as Stevie Bruce is concerned. And he can focus on his bacon. Um, And the final bit of news we'll touch on, Justin, as I say, a Sunderland theme to each of these stories in the news. Um, Who's ready for another round of Mick Beale being Mick Beale? Because it's, it's been an interesting 48 hours or so. So... What the Falk, which is a Sunderland podcast, produced some incredible detective work this week. They found an account on X, formerly known as Twitter, which has been defending Mick Beale a lot. It includes a post which was retweeted calling Sunderland fans toxic and saying who in their right mind would want that job. Well, it appears that account actually may have belonged to Mick Beale or at least somebody close to him because multiple posts say the account was a business he used to run. Now, said account has since been deleted and The Athletic say Beale's camp have denied it was him behind the posts. But an incredible turn of events, Justin. It's it's just another thread in this incredible, you know, short but in- amazing period of Mick Beale at Sunderland. Just the short, amazing period of Mick Beale over the last 18 months, right? Yeah. It's just absolutely bizarre how he's put himself in this position. He's got his own propaganda account, for God's sake. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, and, and quite truly bonkers. I mean, you might come out and deny it, but it's, yeah, it's quite obvious that he's, he's been there. It's, I think, to be fair, it might not necessarily be him who's behind the account, but it's someone close to him. Because it just simply has to be, otherwise it would make no sense at yeah. all, would it? Whether yeah. it's his agent or I know, a family member or a friend or something like that. But still, have some foresight about you. And, you know, it it didn't take long for people to figure out that this account was someone connected to Mick Beale, possibly even Mick Beale himself. Mm -hmm. So you'd have thought you would have had a bit of due diligence, really, wouldn't you? This is it, though. Football fans can track aeroplanes now. Yes. They can track new signings via Skyscanner or whatever. What is it? You know what I mean? They can find find professional footballers on... On the M2, they they know what they're doing. So this this is I don't know where the M2 is. The M1, I should have said the M1. They can find footballers anywhere. They can find new signings anywhere. Anywhere. So investigative work is at their centre. So this is going to be easy. So yeah, Mick Beale, you've you've uh, you've shot yourself in the foot here, and you're probably not going to land in a championship job. To be honest with you. I mean, this hasn't helped his chances, has it? Because this is (laughs) this is probably the lowest it can go at this stage, isn't it? Oh dear, poor Mick. Um, anyway, Justin, that's the final bit of news from the Championship in the past few days. Let's finish off with a round of footballers you've met in strange places. Now, this has been going crazy ever since we started talking <laughs> about it this time last week. I was talking about Jamie Vardy bumping into him at outside uh, some train toilets. And the response we've had from listeners since has just been glorious, absolutely glorious. Now, the key thing that we've been saying here is we don't necessarily care how famous the footballer is. The stranger the place, the better. And again, we've had so many people emailing in. We can't get around to every single one, but we've picked out some of the best ones and keep them coming in because we are loving this <laughs> so much. This is from Jordan Bash. He says, the night that Forrest secured promotion back to the championship, I bumped into the squad out in Nottingham, got talking to them and made out I was a Forest fan and tagged along and spent the evening with Wes Morgan and co with lots of free drinks, etc. Uh, love the pod, guys. Listen every week. Let's keep the Ipswich going up tractor on the road. Apparently he's an Ipswich fan, so what he was doing in Nottingham, <laughs> I have no idea, but uh, thank you, Jordan, for that. Caleb Martin has been in touch. He he says, on a, out on a school trip to Alton Towers in 2015, I bumped into Marcus Rojo with his family. He was at Manchester United at the time. I naturally asked him for a photo before walking away sheepishly when I realised he spoke no English. Thanks for all you guys do. <laughs> Marcus Rojo at Alton Towers, Justin. That's incredible, isn't it? Um, I mean, uh, if it was uh, Sandra Martinez, fellow countryman, he wouldn't be getting on any rides, would he? That's uh, a bit of a, bit of a digger. Mean. 
That is no, mean, isn't it? That absolutely is no need there was, for that. There wasn't any. There wasn't, yeah, there wasn't any need. You are right. But yeah, Marcus Rojo, an aggressive footballer. Love to see it. At Alton Towers from, with his family. Sorry. Thank you. This is from Joshua Opre. He says, hey, guys, hope all is well. Loving the pod. I used to work in a kids soft play area and once hosted a birthday party for the child of John Terrell. I walked into the room to see John Terrell, Jordi Device, Reese Burke and Kevin Stewart, obviously all at Hull at the time, um, stood there having a chat with cups of cordial in their hands. And I could only muster a basic good result on Saturday, guys, before awkwardly speed walking out of the room. Uh, typically, John Terrell had a boot on at the time because he was injured. <laughs> In the soft play. In the soft play, yes. <laughs> Twisted his ankle while going into a ball pit. Um, thank you, Joshua, for that. And the final one, Justin, this is from Tom Seed. He says, hello, chaps. I bumped into Connor Wickham in the smoking area of a nightclub in Newcastle years ago. I was politely moved on by his friend after I drunkenly asked if Paolo Di Canio had lost the dressing room at Sunderland. <laughs> he wasn't keen to divulge any inside info. <laughs> but, a, but a careful wink, yes, as he left, as he was dragged away by his pals. Oh, good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you, everyone, for sending them in. I, I don't want this to stop anytime soon, so keep sending them in to secondtierpod at gmail.com and I'm sure we will give you a shout-out. As we say, the more unique the place, the better. And I don't necessarily care how famous the player is. I did before, but now I think it's actually funnier when it's someone like Jan Terrell um, et al. <laughs> so more of that, please. Anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Second Tier Podcast. And this has been a midweek episode looking back at all the games in the championship from the past few days, as well as talking about a bit of news. And, you know, Sunderland till I die. What a, what an event. Um, but we'll be back again tomorrow with our preview show sponsored by SBK as we make our predictions for the weekend. So we bloody look forward to seeing you then. But this has been the Second Tier Podcast. I've been Ryan Dilks. I've been Justin Peach. And a big thank you for listening. Luke Williams, Swansea manager. He's now the 18th longest serving manager in the championship. He's only been there for 45 days. <laughs> what a stalwart. What a stalwart. <laughs> That's incredible, isn't it? If that doesn't sum up the championship, I don't know what does. The bloody, bloody championship, ladies and gents. Second Tier is a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network.